If you have a Bible, please turn to uh, Mark chapter 2. We are in a, uh, a series in the book of Mark that will, that will, will, will take us probably a year to get through, but we'll, we'll stop, we'll do an Advent series, and we'll do other different series inside of the series, but it'll take us a while to get through, and it, we're calling it the story and way of Jesus. And so my hope um, is that like, we get immersed in this story. I want us to... Uh, think in the story world of Mark. Uh, the very first time, when we started our church, we started in the book of Mark, and it has shaped my imagination. Um, and, and I hope to get back into it uh, so, that, so that you feel very similarly, that, that, that the gospel uh, of Mark, or a gospel, shapes the imagination of how you work and design and create and parent and uh, date and married and whatever. However you do your thing, this would, would shape it. So, we're going to be in Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 22, though. There are two different stories. They are connected, you will see, but I'm going to really focus on the first story. I might save the next story till next week. Now, warning, today is more of an old school, straight up Bible study. So it's like teaching rather than sermon, really. So take some notes. It's my hope to, to teach and to immerse our imagination into the story world uh, of Mark. So, so let's read. Verse uh, 13, I'll read it to you and then I'll, I'll pray. Verse 13, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake and a large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, um, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. And while he was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed Jesus. And when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why is he eating with them? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples, John, John the Baptist, why, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Your disciples aren't fasting. And Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away, and on that day they will fast. No one, he, and this is a parable, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old and make the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskin. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, so that won't happen. This is, these are the words of, of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that this morning we would be immersed in the story of the gospel to where we as a congregation, as a community following Jesus, would be able to reenact your story. That we would reenact it in our neighborhoods and in our jobs and on the streets of San Francisco that we would know your story and reenact your story. So, Lord, I pray that you would anoint me by your spirit to be able to communicate in a way that uh, shapes our imagination. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. What do you see before you look at someone? 
Like, really look at them. What do you see when you glimpse a stranger on the street or at church? When you see a group of people on the news or marching down the street in protest, when you just simply glance at another person, who appears? Life and people are oftentimes way too complicated to be able to see people as just individuals most of the time. We see a group of protesters and we can't see them as individuals with individual stories or else our brains would explode. We actually can't do that. We can't just see a sea of people and go, those are all individual people with individual lives and we can't just lump them into categories. We can't do that or else our brains would explode. So what we do is we put people into categories in our minds so we can make sense of the world. We divide people into types, into hipsters or tech nerds or Trumpers or evangelicals. Ooh, that's a bad one. Or white or black And then we associate traits or characteristics with each group of people. David Brooks had a column in the New York Times this past week where he tries to put his finger on what's tearing us apart in society right now. He calls it essentialism. Not what Greg McEwen means by that in his book Essentialism, which is a good book, but what sociologists mean by that in that when we identify people and we put labels on groups of people, we, what, what we put on them is what we believe that these, these labels mean that, they, that people and groups have essential and immutable natures rooted in biology or in the nature of reality. And this is what we do. We think that all, peop, all immigrants are the same or all people of color are the same or all white women are the same or whatever. We put people into categories. You're this kind of person because you're part of that kind of group and you will never change. We all do this to some degree. Which is why I open with a question, what do you see before you look at someone? When you see someone, we assign to them what we believe that group we think they belong to, thinks or acts or behaves like. We have have memes for this, Karens, so to speak. And the next logical step is we assign value and worth to these groups of people. We divide groups of people into righteous and sinners. Now, we might not use those lang- that language. We, we use language like into good people and into bad people. And of course, this is nothing new. This way of thinking has been tearing apart societies for millennia now. In our text, Jesus steps right into, middle, into the middle of this kind of human propensity to divide people into the righteous and sinner group, into good people and bad people. In our text in Mark 13, Jesus has just finished healing a man with leprosy. If you remember this study from a few weeks ago, Eugene Cho was here and taught us this text where Jesus heals a man with leprosy. And the thing about that is there was all kinds of laws and customs to keep people with leprosy away from people who didn't have it. Social distancing, you might say, but extreme forms of social distancing if you had leprosy. And The laws of leprosy were written into the religion and the laws of that society. So if you had leprosy, it wasn't just a disease, it was a sentence. You were sentenced to live a life as a leper. And this was a life without human contact. No one could touch you. And actually, when you went into crowds, you would have to yell out at the top of your your lungs, unclean, unclean, so people would get away from you and not have the opportunity or even the chance of touching you. 
So Jesus heals this man with leprosy, but he does so by touching the man. Touching a man with leprosy. And then Jesus heals right after that a paralyzed man, we learned that last week, who is lowered down from the roof by his friends. Now Jesus doesn't touch this man. He actually doesn't even heal him at first. He just says to this man's son, your sins are forgiven. And this made people mad. Who does Jesus think he is going around and forgiving sin? You can't do that. If you want your sins forgiven, there is a way that that happens. Atonement made at the temple, religious ceremonies and practices that you could have performed by the authorities. You can't just go around healing and calling people sinless. But Jesus famously says, you know what? I want you to know that I actually do have authority to forgive sin. And I'm going to prove it to you by saying this, take up your mat and walk. And the man does. And then right after this, Jesus is walking by the sea, teaching. And he sees Levi, the tax collector. And there was a certain social category for tax collectors in those days. I guess maybe in these days too, there's a certain like social stigma for tax collectors. But especially in those days, they were classified as sinners. And when Jesus saw Levi, Levi was in the middle of doing the very thing that made him so hated, so sinful. He was at his booth collecting taxes from fishermen by the sea. See, the Jews hated tax collectors. They saw them as traitors. They worked because the tax collectors were Jewish people who worked for the oppressive Roman government doing the dirty work on their own people. They also saw tax collectors as thieves because oftentimes tax collectors would hike up taxes to skim off the top and line their own pockets, stealing from their own people. So Jesus sees this man, he says to him, follow me. This is a command. It's not a suggestion, it's not an invitation, it's a command. He says, Levi, I want you in my band of disciples. Come and follow me. And Jesus calls him right in the middle of his ordinary life, at work. This is where Jesus calls him. And Levi does. He leaves everything behind and follows Jesus. And the text doesn't dwell on the sheer radical nature of a tax collector joining the disciples of Jesus. The narrative quickly moves from the dinner table to a party. A party. And at this dinner party were Levi's friends, other tax collectors and sinners. And all around the table enjoying food and drink, presumably at Levi's nice house. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders of that time, hear that this party is happening and they show up to this party, not to join the party, of course, but to see what's going on at this party. Last week, there was a, a house party going on across the street, a high school house party, mind you. And it spilled out into the street, so there was just a, a ton of high schoolers in our street just talking and yelling and all this other stuff. And of course, I peeked out to see what's going on. I showed up in my robe. I have a robe now. I'm a dad with a robe. <laughs> a friend of mine bought me a robe for my birthday. So I show up out, like, outside this big window in front of my house and show up with my robe on, just like looking outside, very pharisaical. <laughs> what's going on out here? These Pharisees didn't show up. To this party to become a part of this party they showed up to to see what was going on with Jesus and they noticed that Jesus was eating with all of those people those people 
who look and talk and act a certain way and those people who don't act and talk that way really have no business with those people. And they ask his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And the thing is, this is a really good question. Actually, why has Jesus been doing all the things he's been doing up to this point? Why did he touch a leper when he could as easily just spoke the word and healed the leper or waved his hand or something? I mean, it's Jesus. Jesus heals in all sorts of ways. He could have just went, be healed or waved or like rubbed his hands together or like did a, like a finger thing. He could have done anything to heal the leper, but he heals him by touching him. Why did he do that? Why did he forgive the paralytic when he could have just healed him? Just like saw the man on the ground and said, you know what? Get up, take up your mat and walk. Why did he say first, you're forgiven? And why did he party with Levi's friends when he could have just made him a disciple and moved right along? Why party with all of these other sinners? I guess what I'm trying to say is Jesus could have done all of the above without the conflict. He could have healed the man without, with leprosy without touching him. He could have healed the paralytic without forgiving him. He could have called Levi without throwing a party with sinners. And every time he did one of those things, the religious leaders were like, you can't do that. You're not allowed to do that. Conflict. Conflict is at the heart of most good stories. Can you imagine a new James Bond movie without conflict? Without someone to, just trying to destroy the world? Without conflict, stories would just only be a sequence of events strung together. It would be Instagram. Highly addictive, but with no substance at all. Just things happening. This is what I ate today. This is where I went today. This is who I'm with today. It would just be that. You're like, there's no drama there. There's nothing. It just, it's addictive, but it's just nothing. See, it's the conflict that reveals the core values and beliefs of a narrative. It's the suspense and the struggle that shows us what's really going on and what we should be paying attention to in a story. It's conflict that reveals these things. It's James Bond's conflict with the bad guys and with the good guys, his own boss, and with himself that lets you in on the real plot and the values that drive the plot forward. So to understand the conflict is to understand Mark's gospel. You have to understand the conflict that's going on in Mark's gospel. And to understand the conflict, you have to understand the Pharisees. Now, this might seem irrelevant at first glance and maybe a little bit boring, but I promise you it's anything but. So please pay, pay close attention. The Pharisees. The Pharisees were a grassroots, powerful movement in Israel during the time of Jesus. They began sometime in the intertestament period, that period between when the Old Testament ended and the New Testament began. And by the time Jesus began his ministry, they were a fully formed religious, political, and social power. So when Jesus began his ministry, this group was in its height of power. The Pharisees were very, very popular at that time especially with the middle class of Israel. Now, why were the Pharisees so popular? Well, because during the time of the Greek and Roman occupation of Israel, the Hellenistic culture of Greek life intruded upon the Jewish people, threatening to destroy their religious traditions, even their rule of law. This is what you call soft 
power. Now, Rome had hard power. Greek culture had hard power in that when Roman rule took over, they took over your country. They occupied it. But they didn't make you do all the things the Romans did. They actually let you coexist or just exist in your culture and through soft power and influence would change your culture. It's what America is, is, is called guilty of all over the world, soft power. We don't take over a country. We just send them uh, our technology and our movies and through soft power, we influence other countries to become capitalists like us. This was the Roman Empire through this Hellenistic culture, soft power, and so it was infiltrating Jewish way of life. And so, of course, whenever something like this happens in almost any society, when a, when a group of people feel another group of people are destroying the fabric of their way of life, the way their grandparents and great-great-great-great-grandparents lived, this becomes fodder for a moment of great opposition. So inside of Judaism, you had this deep desire for people to reconnect with their historic roots and traditions and spiritualities. And out of that was born the Pharisees. Pharisees were the group that promised it was going to make Israel holy again. And if you read political things into that, you wouldn't be wrong. Pharisees were the leaders of the synagogues learned in the Jewish law, and their power came from their influence, moral influence. They were the moral majority. They were all about personal piety through the Jewish law. The basic ideal of the Pharisees is that Judaism, the covenant between God and Israel, can be experienced by anyone through strict adherence to the Torah practices as interpreted by them. And so they would add on to the Torah practices. Yes, Sabbath is from God, but let's put us so many laws around the Sabbath so as to be super holy as to not even break, ever break the Sabbath. So they stressed and pressed personal righteousness in the forms of table purity, so eating kosher and ritualistically washing before the meals, Sabbath purity and what you did on the Sabbath and what you didn't do on the Sabbath, prayer and tithing to where they even tithe their mint they got from the store, fasting, study of the Torah. Their name meant one who is separated. Pharisee means separatist or one who is separated. Into this culture milieu comes Jesus. Do you see now that, are you starting to understand the tension here? Why they're always asking about why aren't you fasting or why didn't you wash before meal or why are you, why are you breaking Sabbath or what, why are you praying like this? Or you, Do you see now like the, the tension here? Jesus comes and he starts to pro proclaim the rule of God, to pro proclaim the, the rule of the kingdom of God. Remember this from a few weeks ago, Jesus saying the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe in the gospel. In the story of Mark, Jesus, has, Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah that brings the rule of the kingdom of God. God's true way and healing power is pressing into time and space. So wherever Jesus is, the rule of God is pressing and like confronting and coming up against all forms of false power. And so Jesus brings the kingdom of God and it starts entering people's living rooms and their boats and into their tax collector's booth and into the streets where they live. And this is exactly where all the tension comes from. 
In Mark's story world, the Pharisees and the other religious authorities have created a society with boundaries and borders to guard against contact with those who are unclean. Pharisees believe that people attain holiness by separation. You are holy because you're separate from everyone else. And, but they wouldn't be that wrong if you've ever read Psalm 1. Like, you, you're not, you don't have any association with sinners. You don't walk in their ways. You don't sit with them. You don't, you don't follow their ways. You're separate from sinners. So they would create this whole system to keep you from ever coming into contact with anything unclean. So there was a system, a whole system around lepers and what to do and not do with them. Women's blood, corpses, people with unclean spirits, impure food, tax collectors. Now, one more point of tension you have to understand in Mark's gospel. See, there were always a bunch of ragtag messiahs popping up in the time of Jesus. Like, Jesus wasn't the first person that they, that they thought was the messiah. There was tons before him and tons after him. And it was the Pharisees' job to inspect and certify the Jewish messiah. If anyone was going to see the Messiah in their lifetime, it was going to be the Pharisees. The Pharisees were not going to miss the coming Messiah. They knew the law. They knew the prophecies. They knew the Torah forward and backwards. And they were, they were living into the Torah law better than anyone else around them. So Jesus shows up and people start to say that he's the Messiah. That he teaches and he doesn't teach like the scribes or the Pharisees. He teaches with authority. And then he comes performing miracles. And the kind of miracles that only God can do. So everyone starts to question, could Jesus be the Messiah? Now, whose job was it to certify the Messiah's presence? The Pharisees. This is why they're always around inspecting Jesus. This is why they show up to the party and like, wait, Messiah wouldn't act like that. When he's healing and they're like, wait, Messiah wouldn't do that. When he's touching lepers, like, wait, 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 Messiah, you can't do that. This is why Jesus, when he could have healed the man with leprosy without touching him as to avoid conflict, does cross a boundary and touch him. When when Jesus could have healed the paralytic without forgiving him, he does cross the line and heal the man outside of the temple and outside of the rituals. When he could have called Levi without throwing a party with sinners, he does cross into the den of sinners to enjoy their food in company. It's almost as if Jesus was provoking the religious order. It was almost as if Jesus was provoking the religious leaders. And you have to ask yourself, why is Jesus doing that? Was Jesus just having fun and agitating everybody? Was he one of those annoying people that just love to make other people mad because they're really smart? Is that what Jesus was doing? Now, I don't think so. It wasn't just what Jesus was doing. Remember the Pharisee's name, the one who is separated, the separatists. The Pharisee's life mission was to make a people who were separated and holy, not like the Hellenistic world. This was a noble task, but the problem was it was missing the point entirely. Let me show you. Turn your Bibles over to Genesis chapter 1. I want to show you something really quick. Genesis 1. Look at verse 3. Now, if you're new to our church, I often try to get back to Genesis 1 as often as I can to know this is like the beginning of the story of God, and it's really important to get back there. So I want to show you something here. Just in the, the creation narrative, the creation song, goes like this. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. 
And God saw the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate the water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water from the vault and the water above it. And it was so. And God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let, us, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let the dry ground appear. And it was so. And God called the dry ground land, and gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Now, it goes on from there, but the point is this. In the creation song, God separates and unifies. He separates light from dark and then unifies them together into the day and night rhythm. He separates sky and land and unifies them with the atmosphere. He separates the land from the ocean and unifies the symbiotic nature of land and ocean. And then, at the height of creation, Genesis chapter 2, you might have not really, really ever understood this passage of Scripture. And it is kind of weird, but you have to understand what God's doing, what, what the story's telling us. God made woman from man's rib. He put man to sleep. He took his rib and made woman. And then man woke up and said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This, and this is the first, like, commentary in Genesis. This is why man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. What is God doing? The same thing he's been doing since the beginning. He separates male and female and brings them together again in unity and marriage. Separation, unity. Do you see that? Same thing he did with the sky and the land. Separates them and unifies them. Night and dark separates them and then makes them, he, he brings them into symbiosis. And then Jesus when he was quoting this passage of scripture, adds to the oral tradition in Mark chapter 10. Look at Mark chapter 10, verse seven. Jesus quoting from Genesis two, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And this is Jesus' addition. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. What's the point? God separates and unifies. Separation is important and unity is important. So back to our original question. Why was Jesus seemingly purposefully pissing off and provoking the religious leaders? Why was he doing that? Here's the answer. Because Jesus was trying to subvert a religious system that was separating what God had always wanted to join together. Sinners to God. This is why Jesus is on earth in the first place. This is the project that God was after from Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve ate from the fruit. God goes after them. You might have grown up being told, no, God is afraid of sin and anything that's that sin, God can't be around. Then Jesus would not have shown up in the flesh. God, the basic of the Bible story is God going after sinful humanity to restore them. This is what God is up to. This is what Jesus is doing. There was a system that grew up around Torah law and the time of Jesus that was keeping sinners here and the righteous over here. Keeping the clean here and the unclean here. Keeping the holy here and the unholy here. The good people here and the bad people here. And there was this chasm 
that people like tax collectors and sinners and lepers and unclean women with issues of blood could never bridge. They could never, ever get into the holy. They can never get to clean. They can never get to good. They can never get to righteous. Jesus, the Messiah, shows up and brings the rule of God and and all this generates all sorts of conflict because it ruptures the conventional conception of God and creates a new understanding of God. God comes near. Instead of guarding boundaries, God now crosses boundaries. Instead of remaining in the temple, God now breaks out and to become available everywhere, even at dinner parties. Instead of withdrawing from defilement, God spreads holiness. Instead of working from the center, God works from the margins. And then God sends an anointed one who does not dominate, but undergoes persecution and death in service of others. And so, in all these matters, the authorities are trapped inside old wineskins of their conventional views, unable to see new wine in their midst. And what Jesus says is this, when they say, why don't you fast like John's disciples fast, like we fast, and Jesus says, if you try to put me, new wine, into your old, crusty wineskins, you're gonna lose both the old wine, or the new wine, and the old wineskins. It will destroy you, and it will destroy the new thing I'm doing. We need new wineskins for new wine. I'm doing a new thing, and it's centered around joy. It's centered around, I am among, God is among us, among you now, and healing is coming and breaking into time and space. It's restorative, and this is what I'm doing. So why is Jesus there eating with tax collectors and sinners? Because it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick do. Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, Jesus answered a question about eating with a proverb about healing. Why are you eating with them? Because I'm here to heal. I'm here to restore. Jesus is tenacious about our restoration, our healing. And when there's religiosity that stands in the way of that or moralism that stands in the way of that or spirituality or anything that stands in the way from the sick having access to the great physician, Jesus will tear it down. And he provokes. He goes and he starts provoking because they've created a system that keeps people from God. And Jesus says, no, no, this is not how this works. God in Christ draws near. But we're in San Francisco. If I was in the South or something like that, I'd probably keep preaching this message all day long. But we're in San Francisco. And you kind of expect, we kind of expect God to draw near to sinners. That's just kind of like the thing here. So we're like, yeah, that's what happens. What what And what we start to think is, and before we start to think, that Jesus is the loosey-goosey version of God. Well, I like this Jesus. He doesn't really care that much about morality and ethics. I think I like this church. This is cool. (laughs) Which might be a a takeaway from people who live in San Francisco, like, hey, I went to church today for the first time in a long time. You know, I like this church a lot. They're like, Jesus doesn't really have that much morals. He's just like, just tearing down walls. It's pretty, pretty rad. Remember, before you get there, but remember... Jesus' words and intention. His intention is healing and calling. He desires to heal those who are far from God, those who are destroyed by religiosity or church politics or all the ugly parts that happen when humans mess up spirituality. Jesus here is here to heal those things. 
I have come to the sick who you've cast aside and not allowed in to bring them to God. And his desire is to call those who are far from God. I've come not to call the righteous but sinner. Call. What does that call mean? Who did he just call? Levi. What did he say? Follow me. What that means is he's calling people to, to make them his disciples. He's calling those who are sick, not just to healing, but to be his followers, to be with Jesus. We're going to read this in a few verses. In, 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 um, in chapter 3, verse 13, Jesus calls people to himself so he can be with them. And through the process of being with them, he becomes like them. And then eventually, he sends them out to do the very work she did, to reenact the story of Jesus. This is what he does. He doesn't just say, you're healed. Here's your feel goods. Here's like tearing down the religious system. He actually makes a whole new group of people, followers of Jesus, who embody the story and then reenact the story of Jesus. A couple takeaways before we end. Because the message is Jesus draws near near to sinners. That's just the message, right? I can't, I'm not going to make the Bible say something it doesn't say. That's the message. But I also want to give you a few takeaways. And the first one's this. Your dinner table. Think about it right now. If you live in San Francisco, it's probably really small. Like in a closet or something or a hallway. (laughs) Our first apartment in San Francisco for the first 10 years was literally our dinner table was in a hallway. Who's at it? On any given month, when you throw in dinner parties, who's, or if you are, I guess my first thing is throw dinner parties. Okay, that's point one. Throw a dinner party. And who's at your dinner party? Is it diverse? Is it with people who are not like you? Do you see your dinner table as a place of grace in the sense that it's open to everyone? Or is your dinner table just a bunch of people like you? Do you... I want you to understand, Jesus answered the question about eating with a proverb about healing, meaning there's healing that Jesus does in others around table fellowship. We, our tables are the ways we subvert systems of injustice in our city and our nation. It happens and it starts with a table. For Jesus, who subversively always goes after systems, he, always, he does it in, all, in, all, in these very, very subtle, subversive ways. He does it here by eating with people. And we don't have to reinvent this. this it it's, can be that simple. We subvert systems of racial injustice, class, and socioeconomic injustice at our tables. Who is there when you throw a party? And as you throw these parties... And I will invite you, a few takeaways, is to expand that so it's more diverse. You bring healing. This is how it works. The second takeaway is right now, it would be very, very, it would be a miss if we just didn't acknowledge that we have cleanliness codes today of people that we can be around and shouldn't be around. Right? I mean, literally, we're living in a, in a pandemic where all these new societal codes with religious fervor are being spread. 
are you this or are you that? Are you vaccinated or you're not vaccinated? Do you have a mask? Will you wear a mask? Will you not wear a mask? Well, you can't come over. Well, you can't be with me. You can't do that. And we, we've, just made, we've, we've just made clean coats. If you can't read that, if you can't immerse yourself in the story of Waldemark to be able to see that's happening in our world right now, then we, you missed it. We missed it. That's happening right now. And, and I guess my point here is this, is I'm not trying to be... I'm not trying to be weird to go, we have to be people of faith over fear, and like, what up? That's, by the way, I think that rhetoric is idiotic, so, um, when it comes to masks and vaccinations and stuff like that. My point is, are we excluding people because they don't meet our moral code? Our moral code. Our societal code. Are we saying, I can't extend to you fellowship because you don't meet my code? If you do, you might find yourself right in the company of the Pharisees. Just saying. And so we have to take seriously our, this application in our own lives. And by the way, I'm, I'm really speaking, I know this point because I live this point, like I've said several times, is that person gonna A, B, and C, or that, I don't, can't really be around them. Because I'm, I'm one of the biggest germaphobes I know. And so I'm like, Mask pandemic life is like the life I wish we should have been living forever. Like, can we always just barely touch and like always wear masks? If that keeps us from the way of love, we're in trouble. Now, I, I say that to say, if you are, if you tend to be at our church, um, anti-vaxxer, anti-masker, that sort of group that we lump you into and call you horrible people, like the beginning of our sermon, this is what we do, right? This is what society does. Like, or if you're a pro-vaccine person, pro-masker, you're lumped into a horrible person. That's what we do, right? We just lump people in groups and you're horrible. First, I want to say, start seeing the other person and get in a conversation with the other person, and then stop. We, we can't impose the way that we think we should be living on this other person without first listening to the law of love. That Just read 1 Corinthians all over again. Right, 1 Corinthians is all about like, should we eat with this person or not eat with this person? This person doesn't, has their food sacrificed to idols, but I don't. And are they gonna, like, Paul's like, hey, just pray for it. Just don't let all these laws and stuff get in the way of love. Christian love. So we have to take that. And again, there's all kinds of nuance around that, but the law of love and the law of healing around the table is, pre, is, mo, is the important thing. All the other stuff is important, but not as important as love. Next, we used to say around here, before you invite someone to church, invite them over your house for dinner. I would really love to reinstate that. First of all, that we would even think about inviting people to church is a really cool thing. But again, I don't, again, I'm not really interested in that you bring your friend to church. I'm interested in that your friend gets into the life of our community through your dinner table. So I'd love to reinstate that. Start thinking about that. Who do we invite around our dinner table to get to, to, to have table fellowship with? And lastly, you may be here and have been a follower of Jesus, a Christian for over 20 years, and yet there might be an, an, an imbalance in your life. It might be something like this. All party, no discipleship to Jesus. Your life might right now be like all about Jesus parting with sinners, and you're like, I have the Jesus parting with sinner thing down. Which is great. You're like, I have that part down. This is like, this is my sermon. I, I do that. That's what I, this is literally all I do. But you don't really have the follow me down. 
there's a follow me part that starts this whole narrative. Jesus is only at this house because he's calling these people to follow him. There was making, Jesus was making disciples, remember that. There might be this gap in your life and you know, getting caught up in San Francisco's kind of um, Epicurean spirit is, is, very, is very intoxicating. Like all party, no discipleship. And, I, and, and we'll talk about this next week. I'm not meaning discipleship as in a pharisaical, lifeless approach, but as in a, the bridegroom is among us with joy in our hearts. Let's, let's practice the way of Jesus together. That's what I'm talking about. And so this is, this is the invitation for, for us, I believe. I think the, the first invitation, the thing I want you to walk away with the most is let's start throwing dinner parties. Let's have t- table fellowship with people around our tables. And let's do this with a law of love. And may healing happen there. Like the healing that from over the last two years of isolation I think there's such great invitation for table fellowship. We can creative on where it is, indoor, outdoor, at the park, whatever, but fellowship, we need this. Would you stand as we pray? Go ahead and open your hands to God in just a posture of receiving, expectant. Holy Spirit, I pray right now that as we're here and open, that you, Spirit, by the power um, that raised Christ from the dead. Do that thing we do where, where something sticks out and it's like a, a good kind of thorn in our flesh where it just burrows in there and like, I can't let that go. Where there's a reorientation of our own life, the way that we see people or the way that we see ourselves or our discipleship to you, Jesus. Something right now, some rhema word, some word that was just for us, that was for me. Bring that to our mind right now and drive it home in our hearts. I pray that we would be people that just hear these stories and like, oh, cool, but Lord, we'd be immersed in them and then we would see these stories all around us. We see struggles of power. We see struggles of people trying to preserve something or, or trying to progress in something and we would just want to reenact the story of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we would enact, reenact the story of the gospel over and over again, that Jesus, your grace is available to all no matter what, and you're calling men and women everywhere to become your disciple. May your kingdom break in right now as we respond to you. Break in in healing, break in in awakening, break in in words of prophecy, break in in words of encouragement, enlightenment, repentance. Break in right now, in Jesus' name.